0: But it certainly seems that, you know, this was, uh, you know, according to this, a classified discussion and yet, you know, they're telling the world very specifically about it. Um, China and Russia are definitely one audience, uh, but Laura, I'm not entirely sure that that's the case. I actually think this could be the Pentagon realizing that, that the steps that the United States will need to take as potential steps are going to be unpopular with the administration
1: from the defense and aerospace report this is the downlink a podcast about the intersection of space the space business and defense not just what's over the horizon but what's happening above it i'm your host laura winter hello podcasters despite the holiday this week Well, actually, the entire beginning of this month was painfully busy. The events we're going to discuss started just when most of us here in the United States had already left our places of work to catch the last of summer's freedoms before the Labor Day weekend. Just for efficiency's sake, I'm going to list the events we're covering in this episode by calendar date, starting with September 1st. On that date, the United Kingdom's Ministry of Defense released its joint doctrine publication, UK Space Power. Five days later, on September 6th, that was Tuesday, the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy published DOD Directive 3100.1, space policy that same day and through the next the defense policy board joined the defense secretary lloyd austin to receive classified briefings and hold classified discussions with all the military intelligence and diplomatic space domain stakeholders the agenda was china and russia and developments in their weapon systems that could impact us deterrence and strategic stability and options aka what to do about it Then on Friday, U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris convened the second National Space Council meeting. And just as I was making my final edits to this week's episode, I discovered there was a wee bit more. While most of us, including me and our guests, the familiar and intrepid Chris Stone and Peter Gerritsen... As we were fixated on the National Space Council meeting, the DOD released a readout of the Defense Policy Board meeting that was four paragraphs brief, but serious. Now, as I only discovered it after recording the discussion with Chris and Peter, which you all will hear a little bit later, on Sunday, I was lucky to get both Peter and Chris to come back to unpack just what the readout means. Here's our Sunday discussion. Hi, Chris. Peter, thank you for coming back for a chat on a Sunday.
2: No problem. Thank you, Laura.
1: And because the podcast does get new listeners every week, could you guys take a quick moment to introduce yourselves and please include your brilliant books? Peter, why don't you start?
0: I'm Peter Gerritsen. I'm a senior fellow in defense studies at the American Foreign Policy Council. And I'm co-author of the book, Scramble for the Skies, the Great Power Competition to Explore the Resources of Outer Space.
1: And Chris, what about you?
2: Well, hello. My name is Christopher Stone. I am Senior Fellow for Space Studies at the Mitchell Institute's Space Power Advantage Center of Excellence. I, uh, I'm also the author of Reversing the Tau, a Credible Pathway for Space Deterrence, um, I also, uh, write on various topics related to space deterrence and war fighting at my current job and looking forward to my next paper, which is on, on making space force into the warfighting service we need.
1: So let's get to the readout. Chris, why don't you fill us in?
2: Sure thing. So the defense policy board, uh, met recently, uh, this past Tuesday and Wednesday and, um, Dr. Janine Davidson was appointed by Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin as the board chair to lead classified deliberations on how China and Russia's potential development of fractional orbital bombardment systems and space-to-ground weapons could impact U.S. deterrence and strategic stability. The readout uh, also continued and said that the board considered U.S. response options to the potential development of such capabilities by any adversary and participated in a classified Pacific theater tabletop exercise. And the board will present their findings to the Secretary of Defense in a future meeting. So I'm definitely looking forward to seeing if we can hear more about that.
1: So it was pretty short, but it was certainly revealing. Peter, what's your number one and perhaps number two takeaways just
0: off the top? Well, I think the key line there is that they're they're asking the board to consider potential response options. Uh, to the potential development of this by any adversary that's my number one takeaway um, and that could suggest I think actually four separate things that we, we can't know for sure um, and then of course the second one is their inclusion of Russia in this that you've got China which we know or at least uh, at least the United States has directly given an intelligence you know estimate that that is what China has done but I Personally, don't remember seeing you know, Russia doing that um, since they've been Russia. As far as like what this could mean, I could see sort of four different scenarios. So the first is that this has gotten everybody's attention, but in point of fact, uh, folks are stumped about what to do, that uh, this presents a quandary, something entirely new, people aren't sure how they should think about it, and so they're seeking broadly. The second is that in point of fact, they do have a pretty good ideas about what to do, but they're deeply divided. And therefore they're trying to find out, you know, how the broader uh, community of graybeards is going to um, come down on that. And then uh, another possibility is that in point of fact, they have a very good idea about how they think they should respond, but it's controversial. And so they need to socialize that and getting these graybeards on board uh, could be an important step. And the last thing is just that it is a a way to warn that the United States is unhappy about this development and is starting to actually think about countermeasures. And
1: for you, Chris, what is this paragraph saying?
2: Well, um, in my mind, I, I see very much similar to Peter. However, there are some some differences. So First, I think it's great that they are consulting the Defense Policy Board. That's that's why we have these advisory boards, and occasionally they'll put out reports that are unclassified to let people know kind of what their deliberations were. Um, I mean, on this board, you've got people that of both political parties. Usually, um, one of which is Henry Kissinger, who's ninety nine and he's still engaged, which is pretty amazing. But the thing is, is is as Peter mentioned, you know, they mentioned China and Russia. And it mentions specifically fractional orbital bombardment systems and space-to-ground weapons. And the things that I notice in there is just how they use the language. First off, as Peter mentioned, Russia uh, did have a fractional orbital bombardment system back in the 60s through the 80s, and it carried a nuclear warhead on it. Um, they had those until Russia you know, became a thing again after the Soviet Union collapsed. Uh, But they're they're supposedly, you know, and and have publicly stated they're working on similar things. Uh, China has, of course, had their tests last year. And what was different about theirs is they had that hypersonic glide vehicle that is able to come in the atmosphere and rapidly maneuver to a target possibly through a gap in coverage and, and low enough that our radars can't pick them up until it's too late. So I think it's good to see that they're taking that seriously. Because uh, initially, when that came out, there were several articles of, of people saying it's not that big of a deal. And then others who were saying, no, this is a big deal. So the fact that they're discussing these, I think is great. The other thing that I notice is that it says potential development. And I think that's a cautious term like, like people like to use in policy uh, areas. But uh, in my vantage point, you know, we've seen them demonstrate it, and uh, we know that they are looking at doing that as part of their uh, multi-layered attack architecture. The next thing I see is it talks about U.S. deterrence and strategic stability concerns. And by that, they're not talking about deterrence against space attack, necessarily. They're talking about deterrence, broadly speaking, and strategic stability, broadly speaking. So it's not just the fact that there's space-to-ground munitions or orbital bombardment. It's the fact that they now have a different way besides the traditional bomber and ICBM way of doing things that could create not just in-space issues or ground-to-space issues, but space-to-ground issues, something that people have been trying to avoid for many decades. So I think seeing these things being discussed is helpful, um, and hopefully they will will make a good decision on what to do about it.
1: Did the Pentagon really have to provide a readout? I ask because to me, I don't... think that the American public is actually the intended audience of the readout and putting on my former STRATCOM hat, I think they're sending a message to China and Russia, or am I just reading too much into this?
0: Well, certainly that's my view as well, that there was no need for such a, a public statement. I I can't honestly remember um, hearing about past things that the Defense Policy Board was uh, was working on. Uh, or it being announced in a way that was newsworthy, so uh, it could be that there are many of these readouts and that the that the media itself just never picked up on them because they were not newsworthy. But it certainly seems that you know this was uh, you know according to this a classified discussion, and yet you know they're telling the world very specifically about it. Um, China and Russia are definitely one audience. Uh, but Laura, I'm not entirely sure that that's the case. I actually think this could be the Pentagon realizing that, that the steps that the United States will need to take as potential steps are going to be unpopular with the administration, and that uh, what you can do is, you know, in terms of response options, are not just going to be talking about norms. And so, this may be a communication, you know, to the American public that provides cover, you know, for the administration to change tactics, or it could be a communication to the administration to say, you know, hey, you know, we're going to need to wake up here, and we're going to start by letting you and everybody else know just how bad this problem is.
1: Well, that kind of goes right into the whole lack of a sixteen fourteen report. Um, It comes from the National Defense Authorization Act of 2021, and it's a report that seems to be missing in action. Could you tell us about that? And perhaps maybe this is a kind of way of getting around that report not existing.
0: Well, Laura, you're right. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I in particular was really looking forward to seeing how the National Space Council responded to the congressional tasking Uh, in the 2021 NDAA Section 1614, because I thought Congress was really asking, you know, the biggest, most strategic questions. Uh, Far more strategic, I think, than in our sort of strategic review. And so, you know, it asked all kinds of things about our comparative launch, about our interests in cislunar, about our long-term interests in uh, potential space mining and space solar power, about launch and human spaceflight. And it asked for basically a net assessment um, that was would have been due earlier this year. And then it asked for a strategy that will be due next year. And certainly, you know, this ties right into these really, really big questions about relative strategic advantage and the ability to be in a position of advantage to deter.
1: Could this also be taken by the commercial community if they're actually paying attention to this and if they actually, you know, see this readout? Because it was published on Friday when a kajillion other things were happening in space. Could this be a signal of, hey, you know, we're we're looking for options and the gray beards are starting to work on this? Chris?
2: Um... Possibly. I, I think it's more in line with, with, with because of, of, of the administration officials in, involved in that, I, I do think it's probably more of a message to the Chinese and the Russians, primarily the Chinese, I think, because as this administration has stated, that China is our pacing threat, meaning it's sort of the bigger of the two concerns. Obviously, Russia has a pretty robust space weapons system capability they're building. But, you know, I mentioned Henry Kissinger earlier. I mean, he's been around for quite a while. He um he has respect of the Chinese government going back to the 70s. He's built a pretty good reputation with them. And the fact that they're talking about the space to ground munitions, I think, you know, partly to Peter's point about it being controversial to the administration, I think makes total sense because as General Aquari mentioned in one of our Mitchell events a few months ago, they're doing a space strategic review um whether that leads to a report to answer congress's mail i'm not sure but because of the push for norms because of the push for defensive language and and more soft tone i don't really know if if this will lead to the kind of responses that are necessary and that people have been advocating to the administration for a while but we'll have to see also i think you mentioned correctly that since they dropped it on a friday <laughs> Usually, when things are dropped on a Friday, it's because they they don't want much attention on it, except for the folks that they know are are watching for those kinds of things and so it's certainly probably not for the general public, but probably for congressionals and maybe the the adversary nations themselves
1: so also, at the end of this readout, there was a mention of a tabletop exercise uh specifically in the Pacific. Peter, what does that really mean?
0: right? Well, you know, I take that to mean that the primary, you know, communication and concern uh, remains China. That's why I found the inclusion of Russia uh, a, a little puzzling uh, in this. But uh, but it definitely, you know, seems to go to your point that one reason for this readout is to very clearly say to China, we're thinking about what this capability could mean.
2: Yeah. And I'll, I'll just add also that, um, I think the inclusion of, of, of the scenario, given all the discussion and concern about the Taiwan Strait, uh, because of a result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the fact that China and Russia have become more chummy from a geopolitical standpoint in the last several years, including holding exercises in the Far East, um, which, of course, Russia is also a Pacific power, and not just a European power. So we have that to consider as well. Um, I think that the, 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 a typical tabletop is more of a policy discussion than it is talking like war plans or anything like that. So they're thinking more of move, counter move. You know, if you were if you were China, what would you do if you were Russia? What would you do primarily China? And because, you know, you have people in there that are China experts like Kissinger, who's written books about it and has spent lots of his life there, I think that is a pretty good indication that they're trying to find and think through all the possible ways of handling a scenario like that, especially given the fact that the Chinese have discussed numerous times over the last several decades that they're going to build these capabilities and they have a will to use them. And so because of our lack of capability to stop these weapon systems currently, um, which we did have for a brief period of time in the Cold War, Um, I think that's probably what they were doing. They're just trying to look through all the angles they can to try to keep their policy positions credible um, or see how they can talk people into changing them.
1: As I mentioned up top, on Friday, Peter, Chris, and I also discussed the rest of the week's major space developments, such as the Biden administration's second National Space Council meeting, Let's take a moment and listen to Vice President Kamala Harris open the meeting at NASA's Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas.
3: Americans. Thank you and welcome to the second convening of our National Space Council. So 60 years ago next week, just up the road at Rice University, President John F. Kennedy delivered an address, on the future of the American space program. At the time, the space race with the Soviet Union was well underway. And while our nation had made many discoveries and achieved many milestones in the years before, at the time, America was at real risk of falling behind. And so, to the assembled thousands, and to the entire world, President Kennedy made a vow. Before the end of the decade, America would do what no nation had done before. We would set foot on the moon. Because of the vision, of President Kennedy, because of the commitment of
1: President Now, let's hear just what President John Kennedy vowed 60 years ago, this Monday, September 12th, just up the road at Rice University.
3: For the eyes of the world now look into space, to the moon, and to the planets beyond, and we have vowed that we shall not see it governed by a hostile flag of conquest, but by a banner of freedom and peace. We have vowed that we shall not see space filled with weapons of mass destruction, but with instruments of knowledge and understanding. Yet the vows of this nation can only be fulfilled if we in this nation are first And therefore, we intend to be first.
1: And now, here's the rest of the discussion with Peter and Chris. Today, the second National Space Council meeting just concluded a few hours ago. And surprise, surprise! We didn't get just a canned discussion on the importance of space traffic management. Instead, we got a roadmap to grow a space workforce, a new space STEM task force, a discussion about regulating novel or new space technologies, and a lot of interesting requests. And it's obvious from the fact sheet that the White House issued that a diverse space STEM workforce was the administration's top priority for the meeting but before we dive into that nitty gritty i'd like to get your first impressions from the meeting chris what stood out most for you
2: well um i guess what stood out most to me was is while there there was quite a bit of information that wasn't totally surprising because of early on in the year uh, or the tenure of the vice president she pretty much laid out through Shirag uh, Parikh, uh, her executive secretary, that uh, the diversity uh, workforce issue was going to be one of their top discussion items for the council, at least early in the term. And so the fact that we saw that was was interesting. Um, climate being another one of their priorities that you definitely heard, uh, at least briefly, um, with the administrator of NASA talking about um space observatories and things of that sort to study the earth and then uh, I guess the other thing that stood out to me was um, on the workforce side about trying to you know increase the workforce and the uh, the backgrounds and the access for some folks and so it was kind of the the usual stem conversation uh, with a little bit of a twist but yeah that's what I that's what I noticed and um, looking forward to giving you some thoughts on that
0: and Peter, What about you? What were your takeaways? Well, first of all, you know, uh, to their credit, I thought this was, uh, uh, it might have been scripted, but it was quite comprehensive. They covered a a broad range of things, and there were remarks by a diversity of speakers, including the vice president, uh, that I was surprised, pleasantly surprised to hear. So uh, it was interesting to hear the vice president in her opening remarks talk about uh, the revival of uh, Great power strategic competition and the importance of defense. It was interesting to hear throughout about new industries and to have those industries enumerated things that uh, that my book talks about about asteroid mining and lunar mining and in space construction. Uh, those were you know uh, farther term ideas that I didn't actually uh, think we would hear, and we heard it from the NASA administrator as well as from the intelligence community and others. Um, certainly, I was sort of expecting uh, some forward movement on STEM, um, and I was expecting some new regulatory, but I thought they really sort of decided to to think a lot and talk a lot about these novel space activities and wanting to encourage them, you know, as well as to regulate them, but it was very clear that that encouragement was, you know, sort of a, a, a tip-top motive there. And I liked how they brought in a diversity of guests from the commercial sector, uh, including the Commercial Spaceflight Federation, to sort of lay out um, what was needed, as well as the finance and insurance, uh, which I thought was quite helpful. So, you know, I have to say that, you know, while it did not provide, you know, something stunningly new, uh, I think it laid some good concrete forward.
1: You both heard the vice president pay homage to the fact that on Monday, it will be 60 years since President John Kennedy threw down the gauntlet and said, we choose to go to the moon. And he vowed that we shall not see space and celestial bodies governed by a hostile flag of conquest, but by banner of freedom and peace. It was an inspired call to action to lead or be led. Today the vice president said our leadership in space is critical to the economy, to technological progress and also to national security. Where are we in that actual promise?
0: Well, Laura, I would like to think that we are still trying, but it seems to me as if, you know, the the concern over a, you know, a hostile flag of conquest, you know, is one that more and more Americans in the space policy community are becoming aware of again and starting to think about. Uh, and while this meeting was not, you know, really took sort of the softer, you know, uh, approach of trying to create a, a rules-based order and extend, you know, the anti-satellite ban, it certainly, uh, we, we did hear, quite a bit from folks about being able to counter uh russia and china and and maintain advantage over them but it is you know interesting when you talk about it we did hear the vice president repeat you know that uh artemis is going to be you know to to live and work there and not just to to plant a flag and move on but as much as we're talking about you know national security and you know big ideas the, the one thing that was disappointingly missing was that with Japan you know with the UK with ESA all thinking about space solar power and the emphasis on climate the entire emphasis of this meeting was basically on just monitoring it and not actually doing anything in, in aerospace about the solution and so you know I think it it was a missed opportunity to articulate you know something forward because I do think National power has always been connected with energy, and it's very clear that China gets that connection between energy and space power uh, and is designing their space program toward that end. So I would have liked to have seen at this particular moment in time a, a space program that was aimed at developing in-space power uh, to ensure national space power in the long term.
2: I, I agree wholeheartedly with his comment about the energy thing. And I guess I guess to your question, Laura, I will say the difference in my mind between what we saw with President Kennedy at Rice University in 1962 was that when he gave that speech, we had already been ongoing, pressing toward that goal, setting up the Apollo project and things of that sort. And so it wasn't like it was as brand new as it was when he gave his May 61 speech about saying we're going to go to the moon at the end of the decade. Um, People were already turning screws and steel and people were planning. What we're seeing right now, though, from this administration, at least, is a different viewpoint of what leadership means. At least it's what it seems to me. For example, leadership in several previous administrations meant that you're leading through action. And by action, I'm talking, no kidding, space vehicles, satellite infrastructure, bringing folks on board and instead what you hear from this administration is we're going to have meetings and we're going to talk about norms we're going to talk about um rules regulations things of that sort and that sounds very european in the sense that um most of the commercial people that i've ever worked with prefer to do experience first regulate second the european model tends to be especially from safety and other other vantage points is regulate first and put yourself into a box and as a result you're not able to go out as far and and do as much and achieve as much as you can if you give a little bit of of leeway and now you've got the ban on on testing which you know on the surface of itself is not a problem but the long term objectives being an arms control objective um that doesn't seem to resonate with the two countries that create the debris issue outside of ASATs as well as other things so well, I think it's great to see people understanding the importance of space and talking about the importance of space. It would have been great to see a little bit more policy, actual action and and funding potential announcements rather than another working group or another set of meetings. Um, that, that just seems to be not that inspiring.
1: You know, and I ask this because, A, you know, we've got the anniversary coming up on Monday but i also think this really ties back into the state of the space industrial base report which was you know came out a couple of weeks ago i know but the the real bottom line is where is that north star you know where is that vision that that urgency how do you read that
2: well, well I'll, g- g- go, go ahead chris no okay well i'll i'll just i'll just say first off since um I know that there are a lot of agencies in our government and a lot of commercial entities that are part of that overall big picture that we call the industrial base or the, you know, the space community or space sector. And, you know, if you look at some of the uh, the analysis of the different sectors, whether it's first tier all the way down to third tier and below supporting infrastructure type of companies, things of that sort, Um, and you had a stoplight of like red green yellow red being not in good shape yellow being kind of okay monitor and green being totally healthy you would probably see a good chunk of of things being in the red or in the yellow and while we're seeing some growth in the industrial side on the commercial sector which is great there are some people from the traditional side that's still not very happy about that and then there's Some people on the commercial side that, um, you know, are trying to figure out what's going to happen and where who's going to buy what. And so that uncertainty uh, is out there, especially from supply chains. And the other thing that people just don't seem to get is the overlapping impact of programs on the industrial base. So, like, for example, Artemis 1, there are a lot of people out there who are griping and complaining about Artemis 1 and, and space launch system and all that kind of stuff um, making jokes about it and things. And then, and and they're all for the SpaceX's and the Blue Origins. And, um, and that's great, um, that they're, they're supportive of those, those, those newer companies. But at the same time, you know, each of these companies have people who are working very hard to try to move us out from earth orbit and to show leadership by capability and not just by statements. And so I think a lot of people just don't understand the overlapping and they think that they're, they focus on their own thing. And as a result, do they cancel the program or they do that without thinking about how it impacts the industrial base? And that's, you know, trade is one of our big modes of of showing leadership. And if, if our industry is not capable of doing what it needs to do indigenously, um, then we're going to have to cede that over to another country. And that's not good. And so that's just kind of my overarching view. I know you've got specifics, Pete.
0: Yeah, so it's, not, it's nice of you to bring up the state of the space and industrial base. Um, I brought it cer- up
1: because, very specifically, that, that, that number one top line finding, comment, opinion, and essentially what I also walked away with was the real desire for the industrial base to have a North Star, you know, a, a direction that everyone can take their particular ore and, and row.
0: Yeah, so you know, let me let me start with you know the, the good first, which is that there was an awful lot in this uh, National Space Council meeting that is consistent with the most recent and the last two industrial base reports. Right, there was a call for many of these STEM actions. Um, you know, there was a, a call to you know articulate the value of space. You know, to other sectors of the economy. You know, there was a definite call to, you know, to come up with space policies and regulations that match the speed and innovativeness that the sector is experiencing and not to hold them back with policies and regulations that were designed, you know, for for decades ago. So that's all to to the good. But you're right that, you know, for the last three years, you know, industry has consistently signaled that they are ready for bigger more ambitious national vision and what this report i think made very clear was that look if there's an insufficiently ambitious vision at the very top the entire aerospace sector is going to underperform the bureaucrats won't ask for as much as they you know can ask for you know the bureaucracies won't pursue the biggest ideas the entrepreneurs won't have the demand signal and, uh, and, and we'll sort of be, you know, left, you know, it, you know, you could think about it by analogy. Let's say, as the American industrial base was capable of going to the moon, but let's say that, you know, President Kennedy had never articulated that big goal, you know, if they'd never articulated that big goal, you would never have had NASA, you know, asking to build the rocket components to create, you know, what became the Saturn V and the lunar lander and the spacesuits. That spawned this enormous thing. Well, I think, you know, the, the big message of industry is that you're thinking too small, you know. Look at look at the pacing, in you know, a challenger and how big their vision is. And you know, internally in industry, their vision is that big, but they don't think that they've really got the the highest level of the government on board with this larger development and settlement vision. And they don't think even, you know, they're on board with the biggest ideas in terms of climate change that aerospace can provide. So the second chapter of this State of the Space Industrial Base is all about what that larger vision uh, as, you know, consensus larger vision seems to be. And we haven't seen any action really taken on that. And, you know, there, there are small initiatives that, you know, are making a difference, I think. You know, we now do have a debris strategy out of the White House. We have an ISAM strategy. You know, uh, I believe they're working on a forthcoming cis lunar strategy. But, you know, none of those actually articulate clearly where it is we're going and what we're trying to build to. And, and without that tangible vision, not just a bunch of adverbs, right? But clarity about what we're actually trying to build and how we would know if we got there or not. I just don't think that we are going to run as fast as we could and that, of course, is the other major uh, message out of the industrial base report is that we're not running fast enough that yes we're ahead right now, but the rate of overtake is fast enough that we need to be scared and we need to redouble our efforts.
2: And I'll just add real quick, as someone who, as I mentioned, has monitored the, the industrial base and have worked on the government side and the private sector side, I'll just say that typically that the traditional methodology of, of CEOs of major companies have been to look to the government and say, where do you want? What do you need? Where do you want us to go? And then they base their business plans or five-year business plans based off that. And it's very challenging when when a company has to make a five-year business plan based on a government that operates on a one-year budget with a five-year uh, planning cycle, at least with the company, with, with the defense side, and you know, with a four-year change in strategy, potentially, with administration. So I think that one good thing about the newer commercial sector is that they're not waiting for the government to say where they want to go. They're saying, we want to go here, we're going to do this, this, and this as a means to get there. And as a result, you're starting to see the government shift a little bit from, this is what we want, to saying, we like what you're doing. Let me see if we can find some value added with it. So that's good. But but to your point, Peter, I would say, yes, there are strategies, and I put air quotes around them, because these documents are Executive Office of the President documents from different councils. They typically don't have any budget attached with it. They also typically don't, in, in these in these types that we're talking about, they, they don't have budget attached to it. They don't have um, assigned tasks and deadlines. So there are mostly things that kind of lead into R&D, research and development, thinking about stuff, and just kind of wait for the interagency to figure out who's going to pick up the lead for it, such as uh, that we've seen with the near-Earth object, one that came out a few years ago, like planetary defense, as we're seeing with this. So it's all good. But we have to hold them accountable, the citizenry, the the folks in government, the care, the care of the industry. We have to hold them accountable to achieve these things and to actually make them a thing and not just a nice piece of paper that comes out. Because too many times over the years, as you know, we've we've both been on the receiving end and the production end of these documents that we want them to be the good things and then nobody picks them up. So we got to hold them accountable for that. And we also have to keep them accountable for the STEM push. Whether it's diversity of the workforce or whether it's just for the sake of making sure that we're growing so that we can keep up with all the stuff we need to be doing, as the Chinese are already talking about in the next couple of years building a satellite communication and navigation architecture around the moon while we're still trying to figure out how we're going to do missile warning around the earth. And they're already moving beyond that with con relays and all sorts of fun stuff. So I think it's great, but I want to, I think we need to hold them accountable on all these to make sure they actually happen. I've seen lots of great initiatives on STEM and workforce issues over the years. I haven't seen a whole lot of them last very long. Um, and so I, I just I want to see these actually bear fruit.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting you say that because uh, one of the things that I wrote down in my notes uh, was that my ears really pricked up when uh, the vice president said that NASA is committed to continuing cutting edge science on orbit. Um, And wasn't just, you know, focused on the moon or the Artemis um, program, but, you know, things that are on orbit beyond 2030 after the retirement of the International Space Station and that NASA was really uh, or should be really working with the commercial sector on developing commercial space stations so that that science could continue. Uh, But 2030 is really a mere seven plus years away. And that's not really that long when you start to think about the structures that need to be built being built. I'm wondering if there's actually a real urgency of actually getting this stuff done. Well, I think Chris is right.
0: You know, it is terribly important to be funding new things, right? And like you know, I think ages ago, uh, I think when Chris was at, down at Air University, um, you know, a group of uh, of us faculty at the time, you know, laid out what we thought, you know, ought to be elements of a national space policy. And it contained a, a bunch of firsts that we thought America should seek to engender um, that, that were very specific about, you know, having the first reusable launch vehicle and you know, having the first, you know, private space station on orbit and it seems like we've shied away from, you know, putting political capital into things that, you know, would drive action. Um, so, and that does require, you know, money. I mean, the, you know, that's one of the other things that, you know, has been a big theme for the last three State of the Space Industrial Base reports is that the government drives innovation by putting out a market demand signal that they want something new. And so, you know, if you want to have commercial Leo destinations, you need money, you know, to to make that happen, and you need to have, you know, contracts. And you know, we heard in the in the council meeting today that firm fixed price contracts, you know, was the was what industry thought was the right uh, direction to go, you know. But if we want exciting new things, we can take a laissez faire, you know, backseat and just see what industry brings and and try our best not to slow them down. Uh, But to the extent that those things might actually be important for national security, like for instance, uh, it could be really valuable, you know, in terms of doing in-space development and test to have a facility that can do national security payloads. Um, That sort of stuff is less likely to appear in a completely laissez-faire environment and more likely to occur when there is a clear demand signal, but it's formatted in a way that encourages competition and and lets, you know, like in COTS, lets those who actually are making progress, uh, you know, move ahead rather than a cost plus structure that just rewards and incentivizes endless changes and modifications. Since... <laughs>
1: Just before the Labor Day weekend and through this week, there have been other space security events, both the United States Department of Defense and the United Kingdom's Ministry of Defense, through these space domain policies. And the DOD's Defense Policy Board also met this week specifically to receive briefings on Chinese and Russian military activities, such as anti-satellite capabilities from the Earth, that's missiles, and others on orbit. All of this activity, you know, is it simply the maturing of the DOD and the UK's MOD and their approach to the domain, or is this indicative of something else?
2: Uh, well, I'll start with that one. This is one of my favorite topics. So I will say that um, in my view, I think it's very good to see that the uh, both the UK are our, our great partners over there. Um, are looking at space more seriously from a military vantage point. I think it's great that they're stood up their UK Space Command. Uh, I know that we've been having a lot of exchange of officers over the years. I've worked with with British officers uh, over in the Pentagon numerous times, as well as Canadians and Australians and other Commonwealth countries that are typically our our traditional allies. But we're also seeing expansions of other allies, including some non-NATO allies like Brazil and others that are starting to to grow into being uh, being aligned with, with our side. Now, when it comes to the meetings like the Defense Policy Board, that's also good. The one thing to keep in mind from a historical standpoint is that we've had meetings like this before with Defense Policy Board and previous councils, such as the now No More Defense Space Council, the Space uh, Partnership Council, which doesn't exist also, as well as uh, National Security Council uh, sub meetings, the the thing that's that's heartening about it is the fact that the as we mentioned earlier, this administration has not really been and uh, as we've seen with the with the policy, which we'll probably talk about here in a little bit, the new space policy, is that their focus is still not quite where it should be, but they're they're, they're kind of being drug kicking and screaming by the adversary. To acknowledge that this is not a problem that can only be just be handled in meetings in Geneva, but might well require what people like me and others have been articulating for a while is that you got to have strength to back up your diplomatic initiatives, because that's the language they understand. They respect that. And if they see weakness, they're going to exploit it, which is why you're seeing demonstrations like the one that kind of set off this meeting, at least according to the press, which was the Fractional Orbital Bombardment System demo last summer from China, where they, they launched a hypersonic glide vehicle into space and then back down to the Earth and hit a target back in China after a revolution of the Earth. And people hadn't seen that kind of thing since the 1960s through the 1980s when the Soviet Union last did one. And the Russians supposedly are developing a, a missile system that can do that as well. Maybe not with the hypersonic glide vehicle, but still the ability to fire things into orbit and then retrograde it back down to a target on Earth. And so, with things like that getting their attention, it's not just jammers or reversible things that are nuisance and kind of annoying, and you can wag your finger at and say you're being irresponsible. But at the same time, these are things that are putting putting the word existential back in the vocabularies of people who thought that was long since passed in the 1990s, and it hasn't really been passed. It's just had been kind of dormant for a while, and now we have to deal with it. And so I'm hoping that these meetings will come out, and even though the current defense space policy or DOD space policy is not, in my mind, what it should say, I'm hoping that maybe these meetings and these suggestions from folks that have been around a while, like Henry Kissinger and others, will be able to, you know, encourage them into a better path.
1: Well, what do you think the policy should say, especially for um, the U.S. Uh, Department of Defense?
2: Uh, well, in my, in my view, I it just I, I've noticed since the since the policy framework came out last year, um, a lot of the phrase from the national security side is it still views it correctly that space is an enabler, it's a support, it's utilitary. You know, that's all true. Um, But they're very, very cautious about using the phrase offensive, and even defensive is kind of hard to pull out of of some of these documents. Um, Space Force and space capabilities are typically referred to as supports to the U.S. military or to the Joint Force, instead of looking at Space Force as a co-equal member of the Joint Force, and as such should be able to provide force projection of its own per the intent of its establishment in the first place and so you're seeing in my mind from the policy standpoint a lot of uh, pushback of seemingly trying to go backwards in policy view to 2011 rather than where we should be in 2022
1: and peter i know you've got a view
0: yeah and it's difficult to know where to start because you know, <laughs> I, in my view these are three pretty different questions about three substantially different things um let me talk about the one that I do think is a step change. So as much as Chris is right that these kind of meetings happen all the time, I think the fact that this has been publicized specifically, you know, as like, hey, this is important. We need to take a look at it, um, you know, is on the money. That I think that this uh, has shocked a lot of people. And frankly, it, you know, it shocked me as well. And I I think I'm exactly guilty of what Chris just you know, accused many of, which is to to have assumed that our nu- nuclear arsenal had sufficient overmatch. It, you know, it had sort of receded to the backdrop. You know, you had to continue to pay that tax. But, you know, interesting national security thinking was not in nuclear deterrence. But the combination recently of, uh, of Chinese geo-capable anti-satellite capabilities plus uh, fractional orbital bombardment systems plus uh, the creation of these uh, new ICBM, you know, homes really makes me wonder, you know, what does this constellation suggest? And the most worrisome thing that that it would suggest to me is that the kind of thinking that we see China trying to do of sort of a fait accompli uh, you know, to, to create a situation where, you know, I've walked over the line, what are you going to do about it now, you know, might extend to the nuclear domain. So unlike with the Soviet Union, where I think the primary worry that was that they would do an offensive first strike so that they could annihilate us, I have to wonder if this suite of capabilities is not designed to do an offensive first strike to disarm our, our nuclear command and control and then say, and now we have an equally big or larger arsenal. You know what are you going to do about it? So this is has got so me challenging. thinking. Yeah. So I have to say that you know that this the, not the fractional orbital bombardment system by itself, but the combination of fractional orbital bombardment systems, geo-capable ASATs, and serious increases in nuclear warheads. You know, as uh, as changed. You know, sort of what I think is is necessary to think about so i do think that meaning is signaling a, a step change in how we have to think about things and i think that is going to drag folks in kicking and screaming
2: well and also will add one other thing you didn't mention peter and that's something called retro geo by a lunar flyby and that was a concern that was in the cold war in the 80s where a a, a country like china or the soviet union or whoever would sneak a weapon out, disguised as a lunar exploration vehicle. It does a, a lunar flyby and goes in a in a retrograde back backwards approach into Geo, as a means of attacking vital uh, communication, missile warning, and other command and control assets. And there was a NASIC uh, analyst, I can't remember his name, uh, but it's on it's it's Googleable. That was at an Air Force Association event about a year or two ago. And was mentioning that when they deployed that COM relay in Lagrange Point 2 on the far side of the moon that their deployment signaled the ability or potentially testing a capability that could potentially do a retro geo type maneuver and that could in addition to the ground-based missiles like you mentioned that could reach geo which is you know for those of us listening you know to 22,000 plus miles out Um, I mean that's a ring around the earth that matches the earth's rotation and that's fairly easy to slide in there and just, you know, let out frac, you know, fragments of whatever and shred it, or to do a radar targeting. So while a lot of that seems far fetched, and a lot of people thought that was kind of gone as well in the Cold War, um, there are some that are concerned that a lot of the activity we're seeing in the lunar vicinity for civilian current quote civil activities with the rovers and stuff on the far side could be um, also dual dual use testing for potential weapon systems as well to to defend their interests. So I think either, everything you said is accurate and I think it's it is true not just one thing it's all of them above very holistic.
0: And then sort of moving on to the second topic you asked about the UK document. So I think this is one of those rare occasions when a document actually delivers what the document itself claims to set out to do. So this is a clear strategic level external communication. Communication to laymen, um, you know, it says that's what it wants to do. It, I think it does it effectively. Um, you know, unlike sort of the the uh, Space Force doctrine, this has a much clearer. You know, this is exactly where we are on alliances. This is exactly how we see you know, our commercial sector and our, you know, our, our uh, you know, our relationship to the dime. Um, and, you know, it, it's meant, you know, much less as an internal document. It, it comes closer to, you know, what people call a, a national security doctrine. And like Chris, I, I welcome the UK's clarity in putting this out. And, and so I think that's a step forward. Now, as far as the new uh, OSD space policy document, you know, first of all, you know, it is titled space policy, but most of the document is just assigning responsibilities. There are a few things, uh, you know, in the beginning about, you know, what, you know, DOD space policy, you know, will do uh, that is cherry picked from some uh, higher guidance, but not all. And so, you know, Chris had mentioned, you know, how weak these interagency national strategies were and i think this document you know uh is an example of why they are so weak so you know you can look on page one of the document and it tells you what it incorporates it doesn't incorporate any you know national strategies okay you say well those national strategies you know changed with the winds of the administration so even though you're citing the the national space policy and other you know documents that change with the winds of the administrations. You know, maybe you think that's not, but these are space specific strategies, right? And there is no assignment of responsibility to any of these organizations to make sure that they are implementing national space strategies. And when I say cherry picking, you know, you know, Chris had said that, you know, these documents don't assign responsibilities. Well, that has sort of been true of the strategies that have come out in this administration. They have been very, very soft about actually tagging anybody, uh, but they haven't rescinded you know, several from the last administration, like the National Weather Space Weather Strategy, like the Near-Earth you know, uh, uh, Object uh, Preparedness uh, Strategy and Action Plan, which specifically does tag the DoD. And so amazingly, you know, like the nowhere in this document, uh, even though it's in both the national space policy and a national strategy, does it say anything about DoD responsibilities for planetary defense? Um, It doesn't tell you anywhere in here that you have to, you know, go after White House uh, R&D, you know, annual R&D palm uh, priorities. And so the net effect of that is that it just gets edited out so that, you know, you have a situation where you know, lower level folks are trying to justify or want to do things. And they'll point to, you know, a national strategy. The answer is, does anybody actually read or pay attention to those? Because there, there's no responsibility assigned in this to actually execute or oversee, you know, to make sure that the, the DOD at least is doing anything with uh, with national level space strategies. So I think that's a a foul and a missed opportunity as far as the rest of the document, it's certainly not a national security policy for space. You know, it, it does not lay out here's what we're going to try to, you know, accomplish and this is how we see the world, more similar to how the you know the Brits doctrine, right? It's not a national security doctrine, you know, policy, you know, for the DOD. It, but you know, saying that. It, it does advance the ball and more or less it does no harm you know there are very there's very good pro commercial language there's very good pay attention to the to the national innovation base and commercial based pro commercial and that will advance and help the ball but it is denuded you know of uh, of all ambition basically and uh, and you know basically just keeps to the absolute you know, minimum of like, hey, here's what we you know what what everybody's talking about at the higher level, and this is you know sort of what the, what we're tagged with with the national space policy. So it's helpful, but it could be so much more.
2: Hey, Laura, if I could just jump in with a little bureaucratic one one for our listeners here just so that they might they might know kind of what we're talking about and why this matters so in in government strategy making and plans. Some of these documents that we've been kind of saying don't have any directions. The reason why that's important is if an agency or a department is not called out and given a suspense date to get X tasker done, and what is usually called an implementation guidance that accompanies with these documents, then it's not going to happen. Because every agency, every department, every service, whatever, has tons of things that they're responsible for doing and a limited budget to do it. And unless there's dollars assigned to that and people assigned to do that and dollars to pay for those people, it's not going to happen. And, and what so,
1: happens to those dollars if if the someone is not assigned to do that and a tasker is not assigned and given yeah, an that money is removed by, in the next date? budget.
2: Yeah, right. the money is removed in the next budget, uh, or someone else that wants to have that office's job will do that. So that's that's the reason why we're we're mentioning these things is is that you have to hold people accountable in government, both as a citizen to the government as well as within the government. You have checks and balances within agencies and even branches that in order for to get get things done, it has to happen. So that's what Peter and I have been talking about. Uh, probably should have given that up front, but there's a little one-on-one to help our listeners understand what we're talking about.
1: Chris, thank you so much for the 101 and peter thank you so much thank you both for coming um back on the podcast and i will definitely have you back again soon
2: happy to be here thank you
1: that's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow the down link on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Cavish Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening.